Father, we are so thankful for the life and strength that we have and which we receive from you each and every day. We thank you for the beauty <clears throat> of this day. And Lord, the beauty is greatly enhanced by the fact that we know the creator of that beauty. And we're aware of the fact that one day we'll stand in a, a much more incredible creation. And all of our senses will be so greatly enhanced and we'll be able to enjoy uh, the fullness of all that you are and all that you have made. We look forward to that day. We're so thankful for the word which teaches us these truths and helps us to understand something of the eternal one. Oh, Father, we're thankful that we are not as other uh, creatures on this planet who uh, do not have life everlasting, but you have created us in your image that we might dwell with you forever, and we look forward to that, Lord. And even today, as we will read um, Abraham's uh, cry to you as the Eternal One, we pray that our focus will be daily on the fact that we're just passing through this life, that all that we do should be for the sake of the Eternal Kingdom. Bless us, Lord, today, I pray, in our understanding of the Word, in Christ's name, amen. I'd like, if you would, to turn to Genesis chapter 21. Begin reading at verse 8. Genesis 21, verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And the son of the maid I will make, make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bow shot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter with you, Hagar? Do, you not, do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew. And he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took, him, took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. <clears throat> Last Sunday, we looked at the first seven verses of this uh, particular passage. And we saw that, of course, Isaac, the promised son, was born. And that uh, Abraham had him circumcised according to the commandment of the Lord. And uh, they named him Laughter because of the joy that was brought that in their old age a son should be born to them according to the promise of God. And now in this passage we're reading about the, uh, the weaning ceremony, the uh, great feast that was given for the ending of the suckling period uh, as he becomes a weaned one, uh, one who now uh, no longer nurses at his mother's breast. At that particular feast, uh, in verse 9, we saw that although it was a joyous and happy occasion, Sarah's joy was greatly dampened by the fact that she witnessed Ishmael mocking Isaac. Now, how, what he was doing, we're not told, but he was doing something that offended Sarah. And obviously, Sarah hadn't totally forgotten uh, that she and Abraham had rushed ahead of God, and the result was Ishmael. And this was still there in her mind and still uh, probably bothering her in her heart. 
And so, as she witnessed this, she determined in her heart that the maid and the boy had to go. And so she asked Abraham to send them away. God comes to Abraham's rescue. God, uh, Abraham was in a dilemma. He was distressed. This was his son. The maid was, in effect, his concubine, a, a second wife. And he was responsible for them. And the idea of sending them away was very, very distressing, we're told in Scripture. But God came to his rescue, and God instructed him to do as Sarah requested of him. To lessen the, the distress, God told him two things, or reminded him of two things. First of all, that I, Abraham's descent was going to be through Isaac. This had been the promise ever since the 12th chapter of Genesis. This had been the promise. And uh, I, uh, Abraham knew this, but he needed that reassurance. You know, there's a lot of truths that you and I know, but we need to hear them again and again, don't we? We need to be reassured of these truths because we're battered by daily living. And it's natural for our flesh to become doubting. And we need to have our faith reinvigorated. And so God speaks to Abraham and says, the descendants, the descent will be through Isaac. And then on top of that, he says, then through Ishmael, I will raise up a great nation. So don't be afraid. He will become a great nation. He won't just pass off into the desert and no longer be heard of again. It's, it's really interesting to look at this account of uh, Hagar and Ishmael and of Sarah and Isaac because the Apostle Paul makes a big issue of this later in the book of Galatians as he talks about the relationship or, or the, he contrasts Isaac with Ishmael, Sarah with Hagar. And I'd like to turn to that passage for a moment if we might. Galatians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 21, Galatians 4.21, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, the son by the free woman according to the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear, Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are born of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Now, the key to that passage is, of course, the statement that Paul makes in verse 24 when he says, this is allegorically speaking. He's making a, a comparison here. And he's using Hagar and uh, Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac to represent truths that he's talking about here. Hagar, the bondwoman, the one who was Sarah's maid, and her son Ishmael uh, represent those who are in the flesh and therefore under the law. The law, as you know, cannot give life. The purpose of the law, the scripture tells us, Paul tells us in other places, that it is a schoolmaster. It's to show us that we are sinful. It is to show that we do not measure up. It shows to us that all sin and come short of the glory of God. It's the measuring rod by which we are compared. And all of us would have to say we do not measure up to the law. And so it was with Hagar and Ishmael. But Sarah, she was the free woman. She was the wife of Abraham by their free choice. And her son Isaac, therefore, was born 
into freedom. And uh, they represent those who were born in the Spirit under grace. Children of the promise. The law cannot give life, but under grace we have life. They have life, they have faith, they have hope. And because they have inherited eternal life and they have inherited the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Sinai out there, that rock in the desert, was the place where the law was given. And it represents, of course, the flesh, the world, the uh, impossibility of pleasing God in the flesh. And the heavenly Jerusalem, of course, is the Jerusalem we look forward to. And uh, the current Jerusalem, the Jerusalem today or Jerusalem back in the day Abraham lived, well, what was Jerusalem like? We have no idea. Uh, but in Paul's day, we know what Jerusalem was like, and of course, he was referring to that. Physical Jerusalem is going to suffer destruction just as all the other cities of the world, but the heavenly Jerusalem, of course, is eternal. So we are, if we're a people of the faith, Paul tells us, we are the children of Abraham, as Isaac was the child of Abraham, the child according to the promise. Now, it certainly pained Abraham to do what Sarah requested, and now, of course, what God authorized him to do, but he did it. This is the important thing. The Scripture teach, teach, keeps teaching us that Abraham was a man of faith because Abraham obeyed even though it was painful to obey on many occasions. He obeyed God when? Immediately. He didn't say, well, okay, God, I got to think about this. I got to pray about this. Let me go out into the, into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, no, the next morning, he sent Ishmael and Hagar away. He gathered together a skin of water and some bread and sent them off on a trip. Hagar certainly collected what essential belongings were hers, put the goods on the shoulder, or backpack, if you will, and took her son, and off they went down the road towards Egypt. Now, if she was headed towards Egypt and the road was hardly obscure, why does the scripture say she was wandering in the wilderness? Well, it's possible she could have lost her way, but not likely. I think she was wandering in the wilderness because she was depressed, distressed, and without hope. I think she said, what hope is there for me? <laughs> a, a bondwoman with no master, a son, no one to care for me, nowhere to go, no one to go to. And so she was wandering in her distress there in the Negev. And when the water was gone, which certainly she had to know would eventually happen, there she was in the desert, no water, a son who was dying of thirst, as was she. And see, so she told Ishmael, you sit under this bush, and I'm going to go under that bush. She wanted to be far enough away so she wouldn't witness the death of her son. That's how despairing she was. Scripture says she went about a bow shot away, a hundred yards or so. Obviously, depending on who's shooting the bow, I guess. <laughs> Had she been in a situation like this before? She definitely had, hadn't she? We'd read about that when she ran away from Sarah when Sarah was so angry at her because she had been foolish and she had treated Sarah as if Sarah was something less than a full woman because Sarah couldn't get pregnant and here she was, her first encounter with Abraham, and she was pregnant. It was her own folly that caused her to be chased away, but God met her in the wilderness. Now, whether she could remember this or not, we don't know. It's been 18 years now when this happened since the last time she was in the wilderness. God had at that time, though, made a promise to her. He said that the child that is within you, from him I will make a great nation. Had she forgotten that? Or had she just simply become so depressed that she couldn't believe that it was true. I think it's more the latter than the former. I don't think you forget something like that very quickly. I think she was just so distressed and uh, anguished over this whole thing that she was hopeless and saw no opportunity for the promise to come to, to reality. Now, we're not told what time of the year it was, 
uh, where, when she was out there in the Negev. It probably wasn't wintertime. Uh, it's a steppe climate out there in the Negev, which uh, means it's what you'd call semi-arid, much of what you see in Southern California, <laughs> except this year. Uh, and, and the rain mostly falls in the wintertime. And when it gets to be, oh, summer and into the fall, there's very little surface water, basically no surface water, except where a spring might exist. And uh, without water in the desert or stepland, you become a person without hope because thirst begins to overtake you. And in her case, she sat down in despair and, and, and cried out, we're told, in her anguish. But that 17th verse is such a wonderful verse in the midst of it all. And God heard. God heard the lad crying, we're told. And the angel of God called out to Hagar from heaven and said, I don't think he said, what's the matter with you? <coughs> I said, I think he said, what's the matter with you, huh? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. God knew where the lad was. God had been with her all along. God was with her when she left the camp. God was with her as she wandered in the wilderness. God heard Ishmael's pitiful crying, and he heard Hagar's cry of anguish. God heard. God hears. God is not deaf. He's the God who hears. And God heard them. I mean, this is not the child of promise. This is the bondwoman. But God heard. And God was there. And God not only heard, but what did God do? He responded to the need. God hears and God responds. These are truths that we find all the way from Genesis through Revelation. God hears, God responds. He said, do not fear because God has heard. Those have got to be encouraging words for all of us as well as for Hagar. God has heard. Now, what can you say beyond that? If God has heard, then our faith is in Him. If He has heard, He'll do what has to be done. He had made a promise to, to Abraham. I will make of this child a great nation. He had made a promise to Hagar. I will make of this child a great nation. God is not going to allow this child to perish in the wilderness. God always keeps His promises to His children. That's what this book is all about, partly, for us to understand that God keeps His promise. God hears, God answers. Now, He doesn't always do it the way we think He should. He doesn't always do it when we think He should, right? But God does hear and God does respond. And He always does it in time. It's just that His timetable, timetable isn't always our timetable, is it? We're always in a hurry. We're the infamous Norte Americanos, <laughs> always in a hurry. <clears throat> uh, everything's got to happen according to the clock. I, I was just thinking this morning when I, for, when I forgot to set my alarm last night, <laughs> but my wife woke up and said, is it time to get up? <laughs> what did they do before alarm clocks? <laughs> Listen to the chickens? A blooming rooster gets up too early. <laughs> I guess it wasn't quite so critical. You know, you didn't have to worry about getting up so specifically at a certain time because you know you got this many minutes to get cleaned up, this many <laughs> minutes to eat, this many minutes to drive, you know, this many minutes to pray, whatever all is part of your routine. I think it's important for us to remember, and, and you know, today this may not relate, but tomorrow it will, no matter how bleak the situation may seem. Now, just think, you know, can we put ourselves in Hagar's position? It's, it's easy to look back at her. We have hindsight, and you've heard so many times repeated that pro <laughs> profound truth that hindsight is better than foresight. Yes, well, of course it is. It's always easy to be a Monday morning, morning quarterback, right? <clears throat> Providing you're not talking about Monday night <laughs> football. Um, it, it's always easy to say how it ought to have been done. But when you're in this situation, how different would we be from Hagar? 
if this had happened to us. And we were sent out into the wilderness, a lone woman with a teenage boy, into the wilderness. Ishmael doesn't seem to be really uh, too much of a help to her right at this moment, you know. He parks, she parks him under a bush and goes off somewhere else, you know. That isn't, of course, a statement of what he will be. But the focus seems to be on the fact that the situation seemed hopeless for her. She sat under the bush, the water was gone, the sun was hot, there was no one around, and she cried in anguish and wailed that her son was going to die. I don't think she was as concerned about herself dying as she was that her son would die in the desert. But God is there to redeem the situation. God always redeems the situation, no matter how bleak it might be for his people, for his people. God always redeems the situation. I think even in our most hopeless time, we must hold on to the fact of the teaching of Scripture that God hears and God responds. In faith, we must hold on. Let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 31, a couple of verses there, where God speaks clearly to the <clears throat> change that's about to take place. These people had followed Moses for 40 years, and now there's going to be a transfer of power to another man. And that's always hard. When you've seen God work through a particular individual and he, this person's been your leader for all these years, it's really hard to see the transfer of power. A lot of doubt can come in, particularly on the part of that young man, in this case, Joshua. How in the world can Joshua hope to step into Moses' sandals? Huh. I don't know if you've, how much you've studied that or thought about that, but I've thought about that several times. How, you know, Joshua must have been a man of great humility and a man of great faith, and to even, you know, assume. He, he had to believe in God because he knew he couldn't fulfill Moses' position. But here are the words from the Lord. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Don't fear or be dismayed because it is God who goes with you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Norma. And that is a promise to us as well as it was to Joshua, to the people of Israel, and now it's really a promise to Hagar too. You know, sometimes our situation seems pretty bleak when things don't seem to change, right? Whether it's a, a family crisis of some sort, a job crisis, I mean, you look out over our nation today, and every day in the paper we read about another major company laying off 10,000 people. And you wonder, when is it ever going to end? Now, we're going in reverse. You see this map in the newspaper today. They show a map of the United States, and it's got the word hope written across it. Hope in what? You know? <laughs> hope in the, in, the, in the administration of this country? I don't think so. <laughs> They should have put hope in God. That's where our only hope could be. Oh, of course, the newspaper would never do that. But, uh, we're going to send them back to Cole Parkinson. Oh, we're gonna... <laughs> Anyway, <clears throat> our hope has got to be in God. Not in any administration, political or spiritual. We need to trust in the Lord. And our own situation, you know, we may be within a, a, a 
condition of, of, uh, of a crisis, economic crisis, in the whole country. It can be a worldwide economic crisis, but God can meet our needs in the midst of it all. And of course, there's nobody more like Elijah than, than to illustrate that, is there? The man who in the midst of, of a three and a half year drought, God fed him even miraculously. Now that doesn't mean God's going to, you know, have birds drop food into our, onto our table necessarily. But God will provide for us. As, I mean, isn't it James that tells us that Elijah was a man such as we are? No? We, we sometimes put these uh, persons in the Bible on some kind of a pedestal. And we think, whoa, you know, God did that for them, but he's not going to do that for little old me because who am I anyway? But James tells us that Elijah was a man just as we are. In the 12th, let me just read a verse to you from James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them who love him. We hear it said quite often that if we're really truly men and women of God, then we will have such faith that we will have health and wealth and we will have, you know, that God intended for us to live on easy street. Well, that book, wherever that came from, I don't find in this scripture, in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us that we're going to live necessarily uh, on the bottom side of everything all the time, but it says we will have trial and we'll have persecution and we will have trouble. We're not going to be uh, freed from the troubles that are in this world, but God will be with us in those troubles, and that's the difference. He's not a bridge over troubled waters. He's the one who carries us through the troubled waters. So God met Hagar at her point of need and Ishmael. And he said to Hagar, pull Ishmael to his feet and have him stand here before me. And then the Lord renewed his promise to make of Ishmael a great nation. Now, just think about that. He's making this promise. They're standing there barely. Their, their knees are weak. And the boy is probably, eyes are half glazed over. And they're standing there before the Lord. And God is saying, I'm going to make of you a great nation. It probably sounded, even coming from the Lord above, like meaningless words to them at that particular moment. But notice that God didn't say, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now just see what you can do about this situation and then disappear. Did he? No. God doesn't leave and simply hope that the people will survive and push through. God gives the strength to do what he has promised he will do through his people. And so he miraculously creates a well of water, if you will, a spring in the desert. Now, somebody can argue, well, it just says here in that passage, uh, let, me, let me get back to it, that in verse 19, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Some might say, oh, the well was there, she just didn't see it because she was, you know, half out of her mind. I think personally that God miraculously created a well right there in the desert where there was none before. I don't think she was so far gone, she wouldn't have been able to locate a well. Uh, you know, when water comes up like that, the vegetation around lets you know in a, in a desert area that the water is there. And up from the desert sprang this beautiful, clear water of which they were able to partake and with which she was able to fill the water skin. This was a great act of compassion by God to meet the physical need of Hagar and Ishmael. It's miraculous. And God, by doing this, confirmed his promise. He who promises is the same one who is able. If he has promised, he will fulfill it. If he has asked us to do something, he will give us the strength to do it no matter what the opposition might seem to be. We really need to keep that in mind. 
because we're going to, if we have not already, face situations that seem impossible to us. We just aren't going to be able to figure out how we're going to work through this situation. And yet God will help us. Sometimes it helps us to just look at the provision for the moment and not try to calculate the provision for all the period ahead that we're visualizing as being the problem we've got to work through. <coughs> we need to see God's provision for the strength for this day. She had the water for that moment and the water enough to fill the, wine, uh, the water skin. That's how much water she had. Now she had to go in that provision, otherwise she had to just park by that well. If she was going to go on, she had to go on in the faith of the water that she had been, that, that the one who provided that water will provide sufficiently later on when it's needed again. This illustrates, I think, the truth that when God makes a promise or commands us to do something, He will meet our needs even down to the practical matters of providing the water for daily sustenance. God cares whether we make our house payment, unless, of course, I mean, it, I, I don't mean unless, but, you know, there may be other things involved. We may have foolishly squandered our money somewhere else, and God will say, hey, well, you know, uh, whatsoever you sow, you reap. But if we're being faithful and, and doing what He's commanded us to do, and we're walking in His way and trusting in Him and being wise, then God will see to it that these needs are met, no matter whether it seems impossible to us. Verses 20 and 21 of this passage uh, summarize the years that follow this particular encounter. And God was with the lad, we're told, and he grew. And he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So they settled in the central Sinai. Not exactly what you might consider, uh, you know, a land flowing with milk and honey, but a land in which they could provide for themselves, apparently adequately. And the scripture tells us that Ishmael became a great archer, a bowman. And with that instrument, he hunted. And with that instrument, he defended himself and his mother and then his family. Now, the use of the bow goes way back into the dawn of history. Who knows who invented the first bow, but the bow was in use in ancient Mesopotamia and the bow was in use in ancient Egypt. Personally, I believe that the bow was used in the antediluvian world. Again, this goes back to, to Adam and Eve. I'm not saying Adam invented the bow, but I think for us, we, we've got to completely change our our view, if, if our view happens to be different from this, instead of mankind just slowly through the generations and the millennia learning how to take a rock, you know, and chip off the edges and, and make a spearhead or an arrow point out of it and, uh, you know, somehow through the ages slowly learning how to do this, you know, kind of this knuckle-dragger approach to humans. I, we have to remember that Adam and Eve, I believe, were of... IQ that would blow us off the scale today. They were perfect in their creation. And at the fall, they didn't suddenly become babbling idiots. You know. They continued in the perfection of their being. And the impact of the fall set in slowly. Oh, the, the curse was instantly there. And th they had to uh, begin to perform sacrifice in order to uh, atone for their sin or to look forward to the atonement uh, for their sin. But the, the, the physical impact was slow in coming. I mean, Adam lived almost a millennium. Our bodies couldn't possibly live a millennium today. I mean, they, they get in such condition, we wonder if we can live a century, and most of us don't. And I think Adam was able to turn his, his mind to the world around him, and I think that the so-called Stone Age, you know, the Paleolithic, the Mesolithic, Neolithic, I think it all took place in Adam's life and then beyond that. Because we're told in Genesis chapter 4, as we read earlier, that uh, the sons of Tubal-Cain were forgers of bronze and iron. And that's in the early generations of the human race, not after man had been, uh, you know, swinging through the trees here for a, mil a million years. 
So I think that probably the bow was a very, very early technological device, uh, probably, uh, possibly even invented during Adam's life span. Uh, certainly to be later perfected by others as the crossbow was developed about the 10th century and as the longbow was brought into existence about the 14th century, there were these changes, but the basic instrument was in use, I believe, from early on. Hagar, what nationality was Hagar? She was an Egyptian. So when she decided to choose a wife for her son, it was natural for her to what? Find another Egyptian. Now, we don't know how she did it, whether she actually traveled over to Egypt to find a wife or whether she bargained with some traders going through or, or you know, sent a message off to some distant relative or what she did. It doesn't say in the scripture. It just says that his mother took a wife for him of, from the land of Egypt. And we assume she probably was an Egyptian. That seems to be most logical. So now hey, uh, Ishmael has two women in his life. Both of them are Egyptian. And so although the Ishmaelites are the descendants of Abraham, they are more the descendants of Egypt than they are even the descendants of Abraham. They are more Hamite, Hamitic, uh, than they will be Semitic as time passes. And Egypt tends to be, in the Old Testament, a symbol for the world and all of its temptations. So although this passage in verse 20 says, God was with the lad and he grew. Yes, God was with the lad. God protected the lad. God saw that the lad grew up and that he had a family, that he had children. But the Ishmaelites ultimately became predominantly a heathen people. It would be the Ishmaelites that would buy Joseph and sell him into slavery in Egypt. They were nomadic people who lived in the deserts and the semi-desert regions. And they lived primarily by hunting, by herding, by caravanning, and by raiding. I think it's really important for us to recognize the fact, and, and we see this happening often in Scripture, that uh, whether they be Ishmaelites or the related Midianites or, or whatever they might be, uh, raiding was practiced by many nomadic peoples and they did not consider that to be a, quote, sin. It was just, oh, part of the way you earned your living. You know, if you didn't have enough of the goods of this life by raising your animals, why, raid a, raid a town and get the other things that you need, you know. And uh, so the nomadic peoples were, were feared by the city dwellers. And so city dwellers built walls around their cities to protect themselves from these, quote, vultures. Look, if you will, now at verse 22 of Genesis 21. Now it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me, here by God, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that I have shown to you. <coughs> You shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. Neither did you tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two of them made a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? And he said, You shall take these uh, seven ewe lambs from my hand in order that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called the place Beersheba, because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. And Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Remember what happened in the previous chapter. 
they had lied about the fact that Abraham and Sarah were husband and wife to this very man, Abimelech. And in spite of that sin, in this initial encounter, Abimelech saw in Abraham's life the evidence of God's presence. Just think about that. What a powerful testimony that is. That this man saw in Abraham's life the evidence of God's presence. Do the people around us see in our lives the evidence of God's presence? Not only had God healed Abimelech's household according to Abraham's prayer, but God had miraculously now blessed Abraham with a son. And certainly, this was a powerful testimony to Abimelech. Whoa, this guy's 100 years old and his wife is 90 and they've had a child. Never heard of such a thing. It's got to be the work of God. Why does God work miracles? God doesn't work miracles just to demonstrate His power. God works miracles to show that he has, He's a God of love and compassion, that He is a God who has the capability of fulfilling His word. And Abimelech saw that everything that Abraham did prospered. And he rightly credited it, not to Abraham having graduated from the University of, uh, you know, Jerusalem or something, uh, not to the fact that he had some scheme up his sleeve. He credited it to the fact that the presence of God was in his life. You see, the credit was, was going to God. Thus recognizing the power of Abraham's God, he wanted a, a, a covenant of friendship between the two because he wanted his nation to be blessed by the association with Abraham's nation. And he also knew that if the God... If this God was capable of closing all the wombs in, in the royal court, this God was capable of doing anything, and I, he wanted that God on his side, not against him. And so Abraham agreed to a treaty. But Abraham had a bone to pick with Abimelech. Abimelech's people had taken over a well that Abraham had dug. Now, digging wells in those days wasn't a matter of calling a company in to come out here and drill a hole with this big rig. You had to hand dig this thing down through the soil and if rock, through the rock, or into the rock, whatever the case might be, in order to provide yourself with a well. But Abimelech's people had taken over this well. Now notice what Abimelech says. He declared he had no knowledge of the problem. You ever wondered where the modern-day politicians got this excuse? I had no knowledge of it. They, they read the 21st chapter of Genesis. He said, oh yeah, that's a good way. I have no knowledge of what my people have done, you know. I don't know what's going on. Why are you in your leadership position if you don't know what's going on, you know? We could always ask. Uh, but he implies that he will rectify the situation, and that, of course, is uh, what Abraham was interested in. With a gift of sheep and oxen, Abraham seals the covenant with Abimelech. And then they traveled to the disputed well. I'm inferring that. They might have been at the well, but it, it's, you know, it's possible. But I'm inferring that they, they uh, traveled there to the uh, disputed well. And that, at that site, Abraham exacted a further oath from Abimelech relative to the well. And he gave him a gift of seven ewe lambs to seal this treaty, this covenant between the two of them. Now, remember, we're in the arid Negev, or the semi-arid Negev, where surface water is a scarce thing. Therefore, a well is very, very essential for the ongoing maintenance of life on a year-round basis, particularly if you have flocks of animals to care for. <clears throat> Therefore... A well was the most important possession a man could have in that part of the world at that time. If you don't have a well, you don't have anything else. And so the well was very, very important. So it was a big deal to have clear ownership to that well. And so, as a result of this covenant, the well is clearly Abraham's. And it's subsequently called the well of Beersheba 
or the well of the oath of the seven, referring to the seven ewe lambs. Now this well is still there, right? Isn't that what we saw when we were there? You go outside the tell of uh, old Beersheba, which is just well, within sight of modern Beersheba, which is a place with high-rise buildings in it. Uh, right on the outskirts, just outside the tell there, is this well. It's stone-lined today, and uh, according to, tra to tradition, this is that well. Just as the well at Sychar uh, is still there today, and you can dip water out of the very well where Jesus talked to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. 17 miles southeast of Gerar, really out on the fringe of Philistine control, probably not even really in Philistine territory any longer. In fact, that seems to be the implication of verse 32 where it says, so they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Now that could either mean they were outside the land of the Philistines, or that he was just going back to his capital city. Whatever the case was, it was very, very fringe to Philistine control, or at least to the control of Abimelech at that particular time. But before he returned, Abraham had one more thing to do. He was going to plant a tree, a tamarisk, or probably something very similar to our oak. He had extracted an oath for possession from Abimelech. But as the scripture clearly teaches, this is our father's world. It wasn't Abimelech's world. And Abraham knew that it was God who had said, to him, this will be your land and the land which I will give to your descendants. And so Abraham is not trusting in Abimelech's oath to guarantee this well to him. He is planting the tree as a reminder between him and God that this is given to him by God himself. Therefore, he planted the tree. And there he prayed to God and he calls God by a new name at least new from what we've read so far in the book of Genesis. He calls him Yahweh El Olam, Yahweh the eternal God. The Olam word basically means from remotest time past to remotest time future. Or as you read later on in the Old Testament, from everlasting to everlasting. This is the concept of the word Olam. It doesn't really carry the total concept that we have today in the word eternal. But that's just a matter of, of semantics. It's, it's, it's not that that's not what is implied here. It definitely is what's implied here. But, but the word eternal is really a hard word to get a hold of. You and I cannot even get a hold of the word eternal, can we? There's no way in which we with our finite minds can conceive of the infinite. You know, if you're a photographer, you know there's a little, you, you set your camera rangefinder, there's a little jigger on there that indicates infinity. Well, what does infinity mean? Well, it means it focuses on anything out there, you know. But infinity? <laughs> you know, what is infinity? Well, it's, you remember in mathematics, if you have two lines that are totally parallel to each other, they'll run off into infinity, into infinity without ever crossing. Whatever that is, you know, infinity, infinity. I think they even name a car that. I didn't have any idea what the word means. Um, that car is finite, as they'll find when they have to go to the gas station the first time it breaks down, you know. This is not an infinite car. And, uh, but, you know, it's because the finite cannot understand the infinite. And, and this is clear. Let me uh, just read that, you know, well-known passage in Isaiah 55 where God says in verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So if we ever wonder why it is we don't understand God, well, it's clear from Scripture we aren't going to understand God in this life. And it's going to take us all eternity to begin to understand God when we get on the other side. When, uh, we, we should 
I'm sure we're all aware of the fact that when we suddenly are, are transported into God's presence, we are not going to suddenly know all about God. He's still going to be a, a great uh, enigma to us. And we'll spend all eternity learning to know Him. And after eternity has been going on for... Uh, you can't even use those words. I was going to say for a long time. <laughs> we will just begin to understand God. There's, there's, there's no end to the infinite God. And we will not be infinite, by the way, when we're on the other side. Because if we become infinite, we become, def by definition, God, and then that makes us Buddhists or something. And um, so, I, you know, not willing to go that route. So, we have to always bear in mind that this is going to be the truth. This passage of Scripture does not teach us, I, I don't believe this passage is teaching us, that God is just bigger and more powerful than we are. But it's telling us that God is in a completely different realm. I don't know how many of you read, read some of C.S. Lewis's writings, but in, I think it is The Great Divorce, he talks about uh, passing into the, the, uh, the heavenly realm. And, and his description of the heavenly realm sounds a whole lot like, you know, just a real nice earth. I, it's a different realm. We're going to have senses that are capable of, of, of sensing the environment like, like we don't even begin to have today. And it's not going to be just another earth. Uh, you know, it talks about a new heaven and a new earth, but it's going to be so different. So different than what we know today. I really feel sorry for those who believe that um, they're going to get stuck on this planet for the rest of eternity. It's going to be slightly made over, but, you know, stuck on this planet. Uh, I think it's going to be so much more. God dwells in the immutable, real world. You and I live in a vaporous, decaying world. That's reality. Now, Plato caught a glimpse of this. I'm not calling Plato a Christian. But Plato talked about the ideal world and then the world that we live in, which is a world of shadows, as if you're, you're chained in a cave, facing the back of the cave, and there are people doing a little dance at the front of the cave, and the sun is shining past them against the back of the cave, and you see their shadows dancing around. That's the world we live in, he says. And, uh, but the real world is that world that you can't see. That's back there. Well, that's, I think, a rather poor way of explaining the truth. He didn't know the author of the truth, but he had a little glimpse of, I think, what is reality. And uh, that is the way it's going to be. Well, we better stop there, and it'll take too long just to finish this page. We'll start chapter 22 next week.